It's Tuesday, June 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Supreme Court ruled unanimously against the NCAA and limits on academic-related benefits for student-athletes. The ruling was narrow in that it has nothing to do with college athletes making money off their image, name, and likeness, or payments for on-field achievements. Ben Strauss, sports and media reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for what this means for the movement to increase compensation for student-athletes. Next, more companies are pushing for employees to prove they are vaccinated for COVID-19. Most employers have not mandated that workers get vaccinated, but are implementing policies for those who choose not to get their shots, like continued mask wearing. Orla McCaffrey, consumer finance reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what to know. Finally, the first new Alzheimer drug approved in almost 20 years is providing a lot of hope for those afflicted with the disease, but it is causing headaches for lawmakers in Washington. The high cost of the treatment, if approved by Medicare, could cost the government almost $57 billion a year. Benji Sarlin, policy editor at NBC News, joins us for how taxpayers and patients could be squeezed by a costly drug whose benefits are questionable. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You know, and potentially opens the NCAA up for more lawsuits down the road that would be for player compensation and, you know, for players to sue and say, you can't prohibit schools from paying us. So it's both narrow in some senses, but it also has some pretty good implications in, in some of the larger senses. Joining us now is Ben Strauss, sports and media reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We got a Supreme Court ruling on Monday. They voted unanimously against the NCAA's limits on education-related perks for college athletes. They wanted to uh, limit how much they can get. The court said, no, you can't do it. This is separate from other things that have to do with uh, name, image, and likeness, these other types of compensation for the student-athletes. But Ben, tell us what we learned from the Supreme Court on this. I think it's important to sort of say what, uh, what this is and what this isn't, right? So what it isn't is, you know, a ruling that says, Alabama and Ohio State can pay a quarterback $100,000 next year. It also isn't a ruling that says anything about college athletes going on Instagram and, and making money off their followers and as influencers. It's a really, really narrow ruling that says the NCAA can't make rules that prohibit perks related to education for athletes. And so we're talking about things like laptops or a postgraduate internship that a player might want to do. Schools can pay for that kind of stuff. So you might say that doesn't sound like a very big deal. In fact, it, it, it is pretty significant, you know, because of some other reasons. And one of them is this is nine to nothing on the Supreme Court, you know, polarized country, polarized court, a unanimous decision essentially saying that the NCAA's amateurism rules do not, you know, hold up in court. They're not legal is a big deal. And this, the second part is you, you sort of mentioned NIL. There are 20 to 30 states that have passed laws that uh, will allow players to to make money in various forms. Again, you know, commercials, sponsorships, just making money off their own social media followings that are scheduled to go into effect, some of them as soon as July 1st. And so this Supreme Court ruling will only, um, there's nothing to slow those down, will only sort of uh, push the momentum forward for these sorts of things, you know, and potentially opens the NCAA up for more lawsuits down the road that would be for player compensation and you know, right. for players to sue and say, you can't prohibit schools from paying us. So it's both narrow in some senses, but it also has some 
pretty big implications in, in some of the larger senses. Yeah, let's focus on that a little bit because there was a concurring opinion that Brett Kavanaugh wrote that kind of alluded to that, basically saying that the NCAA is going to have some trouble in the future defending that policy that they can't be compensated. And we all know the NCAA colleges themselves, obviously, they make a ton of money off of these athletes that don't get compensated. So there's been this ongoing fight to help them make money during that time. But tell us what Brett Kavanaugh wrote in this. So this was probably one of the more surprising things that happened. I think the unanimity of it, 9 nothing, And then also Brett Kavanaugh's really fiery, withering, concurrent opinion that basically said, you know, we talked about this being a very narrow ruling. Brett Kavanaugh wrote that if this had been a, a more broad case, if somebody had brought a case that said, can schools pay players directly? You know, Brett Kavanaugh wrote that he is fairly skeptical that the NCAA's legal defense could hold up. And I think, you know, if you're a plaintiff lawyer, if you're a college athlete, you know, current, former, who has read the uh, concurrent opinion by Brett Kavanaugh, I think you're sort of salivating. And I think you're going to see some follow-up lawsuits based on what Kavanaugh wrote. And we're going to really test to see what the NCAA's defense is in the face of another lawsuit that really threatens to be a sea change in the way college sports works. Where did everybody fall in this? Obviously, player advocate organizations that were applauding this decision. Where did the schools stand on this? Well, the schools are the NCAA. So I think we, a lot of times, you know, refer to the NCAA as sort of this independent institution that, that decrees various things. But, but it is important to remember that Ohio State and Alabama and Notre Dame, and these are the schools that are the voting body of the NCAA. And so schools have really been fighting, you know, these changes about name and image likeness and, you know, economic rights for athletes. The NCA is sort of, you know, like their, you know, the, the figurehead that, that enforces some of these rules and ends up being the public face of it. The NCA released a statement that said, you know, we are happy that the Supreme Court reinforced that, you know, that the, the, they can set limits on some things and, and that you can really delineate between education-related expenses and non-education-related right. expenses because, again, the case that was brought was very specifically related to education-related expenses. Yeah. And so, you know, the NCA can sort of point to, you know, this being a very narrow ruling. They can point to the narrowness, whereas, you know, advocates for compensation and more rights for athletes can sort of point to the broader implications. And as you mentioned, you know, those scholarships, uh, postgraduate internships, uh, computers, all that stuff, the NCAA will get to decide what meets that requirement. Yeah, I think you'll, you'll have people argue what is educational, and the NCAA would be the arbiter of that. All right. Well, we'll see how this kind of ruling will impact the broader discussion, as I, as you mentioned, you know, in kind of the... Supreme Court's uh, kind of alluded to, you know, they might be in for some more lawsuits regarding all the other stuff. We're waiting for all those laws to start passing. So the conversation will be ongoing. Ben Strauss, sports and media reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much. That is definitely on the side of, of employers who want to get this information, who want to collect employees' vaccination status. The commission said that employers can require all workers who enter a workplace to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Joining us now is Orla McCaffrey, consumer finance reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Orla. Sure. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk a little bit more about employers pushing their employees to prove that they've been vaccinated for COVID-19. You know, a lot of companies are working out their return to work plans. 
We've heard a lot about hybrid offices and, you know, still working remotely and all that. But a lot of companies are going to return to the office eventually. And a lot of them are starting to ask the questions. Have you been vaccinated? They want to know where their employees stand, especially when it comes to masks. A lot of them are creating rules saying if you haven't been vaccinated, you still got to continue to wear that mask. And we just saw this uh, case out of Houston Methodist where a judge uh, threw out a, a lawsuit that people were saying that they didn't want to be mandated to get the vaccine. So we're starting to see it all over the place. Orla, help us walk through some of this. So this is the second push, really, we're seeing by employees to get people back to work. The first one was, was focused on essential workers, people who work at retailers, uh, hospitals and airlines when, you know, the vaccine white collar businesses that are planning for a return to the office. And of course, one of the main things these firms believe they need to do to craft those plans to go back is to ask employees to report their vaccination status. Most of the time, it's on a voluntary basis. But yeah, it's a really interesting nexus of public health, you know, patient privacy, and of course, the long-term objectives of businesses. You know, it's a tough spot to be in when, you know, managers and, and these business owners need to figure out how to return to work. And you're not going to know unless you ask. And obviously, a lot of people don't want to share their personal data and all that stuff, their health records. But how else would you know? You know, and, and as you mentioned, a lot of this is on the honor system right now where people are just being forthcoming with it. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of white collar work right now. So banks, law firms, other similar businesses, they're all getting into this thing. And, you know, a lot of times they have hundreds of people working in their offices. So you have to come back at this slowly, I guess, with this. But we've seen that it is perfectly legal for businesses to mandate and even ask about this, right? Yeah. So there was some recent guidance from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that is definitely on the side of, of employers who want to get this information, who want to collect employees' vaccination status. The commission said that employers can require all workers who enter a workplace to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Is there a mechanism for mm -hmm. how to get that information? You mentioned in the story some of these companies are you know, making online portals, and then you can kind of go in there and put your vaccination status. Have they recommended a specific way to do it? There doesn't really seem to be kind of an industry standard right now. It's on companies to, like you said, build these portals. One company that, that is providing a feature that employers can use to do this is automatic data processing, which is a payroll processor. So they already have, you know, a dashboard that employees use regularly and, and they're rolling out a product that will allow workers to upload images of their actual vaccination cards as proof to their employers that, that they've been vaccinated. Have we been seeing pushback so far from employees? Uh, you know, you mentioned a couple of big companies like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Have we seen pushback from employees yet on any of this? No, I haven't heard of any specific cases of pushback. I think the culture at banks is, is probably a little more buttoned down than other companies. You know, Goldman Sachs was one of the few companies that mandated that workers fill out their vaccination status last week. I think it was by like midday or the end of the day Thursday. So that's kind of the extreme, but but most employers are somewhere in between where they're either not asking, so it's on just the honor system, or they're asking on a voluntary basis. Yeah, I, I think the latest big case on this is is that Houston Methodist Hospital Network, they suspended about 178 of their employees for not getting the vaccines or choosing not to. I mean, overall, 25,000 of their employees got it. So these are a very small number of holdouts, but there was a lawsuit and a judge threw it out. They said they didn't want to be guinea pigs and all this. But the judge threw it out, as I mentioned, and it just kind of proves that the employers can mandate this stuff for their workers. 
that is definitely the minority of workers at this hospital chain who filed this lawsuit, about 100 of them, saying they didn't want to be human guinea pigs and be required to get this vaccine as a condition of their employment. But like you said, that case was dismissed last week by a federal court. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be yeah. interesting to see how this really progresses. I know a lot of people don't want to release their personal health data and this is just a, a part of it for now, but uh, uh you know, more companies are going to require it. They need to know so they can make those return to work office plans. So, we're going to continue hearing stories about this and I don't know, maybe a few more lawsuits. Orla McCaffrey, consumer finance reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. So you have the situation now where the federal budget might be blown up. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars over the next decade, potentially trillions of dollars for a drug that years from now we might find out, it can, you know, further research might confirm doesn't do anything. Joining us now is Benji Sarlin, policy editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Benji. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about a follow-up really on this new Alzheimer's drug that was approved by the FDA. So on June 7th, they approved the uh, first uh, Alzheimer's drug in almost 20 years. So a lot of uh, uh, good news from Alzheimer's advocates, uh, you know, something new, providing hope for people that are afflicted with it. But there was immediate questions about the cost. I think it was coming in at $56,000 a year is how much it would be, uh, it would cost to be administered. And, you know, now that the dust has settled on that, all the other questions have are, are starting to pop up. If this gets approved by Medicare, uh, you know, what would happen? You know, taxpayers would be on the hook for this and it would cost billions and billions of dollars, you know, for taxpayers, for patients, everybody. So, Benji, walk us through some of the uh, questions being circulated now on this. So this new drug, uh, which is by a company called Biogen and it's called Aduhelm, is kind of a perfect storm of issues around drug pricing right now. So as you mentioned, the company wants to set the cost at $56,000 per year. Now, if that were approved by Medicare and roughly the population that the company seems to think it would apply to, in fact, even substantially fewer people than that were to receive it, you would be talking about Medicare spending significantly more per year than all that it does on all drugs in Medicare Part B combined, $57 billion a year versus $20 billion. So the scale of this is absolutely enormous because so many people have Alzheimer's. You know, there's estimates of about 6 million people who are afflicted with it. So there's really not, been nothing quite like this. This is a drug that's both so expensive but also could apply to such a large population. Now, there's a secondary issue, though, which is experts are not sure if the drug works at all. In fact, a very specific group of experts, an independent advisory panel that uh, votes on whether to recommend approving drugs to the FDA, nearly unanimously said that they should not grant approval to this drug, that the evidence was too mixed, it was too premature, there were evidence of side effects as well, and that it was just not worth approving without, at the minimum, further research to confirm that it has the benefits that the manufacturers claim. And then the FDA went and approved it anyway. So you have the situation now where the federal budget might be blown up. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars over the next decade, potentially trillions of dollars for a drug that years from now we might find out, it can, you know, further research might confirm doesn't do anything. That has policymakers, how do I put this, freaking out. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a bit of a mess. Let's talk a little bit uh, briefly about that independent FDA panel, because we kind of just went through this with all the COVID vaccines. And all you kind of kept hearing was that the advisory panel votes one way 
and that the FDA almost always goes with them. And in this case, they completely went the opposite way. So much so that uh, I guess there was three members of this FDA independent FDA panel that resigned in protest over all of this. That's right. There were three members who resigned, including one who's a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and called it the worst drug approval decision in recent U.S. history. So that's the scale of disagreement they had had over this. And some of the disagreement is the nature of the approval. Um, So the FDA basically approved it under a category of approval in which they say there's basically theoretical evidence that it might work. The drug seems to clear a certain kind of plaque in the brain that they argue could uh, be associated uh, with the progression of Alzheimer's and that by reducing this substance in the brain, it should progress slower. However, there's a lot of dispute over the theory behind this, whether this plaque actually causes the disease or whether it's just associated with it and that the um, independent panel, at the very least, was not convinced. They want further research. So there's just a deep dispute right now over this. It's not like, as you mentioned, cases like the vaccines, where virtually everyone seemed to be in agreement that the evidence strongly uh, indicated that they should be approved. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services ultimately will decide whether federal health programs will cover this. But it's a, a just a tough situation. Obviously, the, the money part is an issue. But you know, for those families that are desperate for help, to say no to something like that is also, you know, could be seen as, as, as not good as well. Let's talk a little bit more about the conversation going on with lawmakers when it comes to trying to reduce drug prices. You know, this is rolled up into that, obviously, but, uh, you know, there's a larger conversation going on as well. America's healthcare costs are just much higher than similarly situated you know, wealthy Western countries. It's just we pay a lot more for healthcare in general, and that's especially true of drugs. And in the case of drugs, it's often, you know, a one-to-one comparison. You know, on average, we pay, according to a RAND study, I believe about two and a half times as much for brand name prescription drugs as other countries. So there's been a lot of talk in Washington about how to close that gap, some of which may or may not relate directly to this drug, but certainly gets to the broader issue. Democrats, in particular, Speaker Pelosi, are very invested in a bill called H.R. 3 that would make it possible for Medicare to negotiate drug prices, something they are not allowed to do now in certain instances, and they would also link those drug prices to international prices. So if other countries are getting a significantly better deal on a drug, that would give the United States government the ability to go to those drug companies and say, hey, we demand something similar, or at least something that's tied to those rates. There's also more bipartisan legislation on the table that could reduce inflation or restrict inflation on drugs over time, so they can't be suddenly raised by a large amount. And there's been discussion at the regulatory level, too. In fact, the Trump administration proposed a rule that would also try to tie some Medicare drug spending to international prices. So there's definitely a lot of policy conversation on the table around this. It's not clear how much of it would specifically solve this issue around Adjuhelm and including its $56,000 initial cost. That might get into some deeper issues, but there's definitely a lot of attention in Washington towards drug prices right now. Benji Sarlin, policy editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.